And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. For the past years, it's been very easy to feel ashamed of America and ashamed of being Americans. Donald Trump has shown this country in its worst light. And it has felt exasperating how it can be that so many people still support him, that so many people still look up to him. Well, as somebody who studies populism in an international context, I have a slightly different view on that. Because populists actually tend to stay in office much longer than non-populist governments, about twice as long. The number of populist governments that are still in office after 10 years is about five times as high as the number of non-populist governments that are still in office after so long. In country after country in which populists have taken over, local political elites have said, that guy, him, he won't last three months. He doesn't know what he's doing. And they've been wrong time and again. Most worryingly, there are very few cases in which populists lose re-election after their first term in office. Now, all of this is worrying. It means that we should take polls according to which Joe Biden is about to win, is very likely to win in November with a pinch of salt. We should be aware of the longevity of populists even when they do leave after their first term. Silvio Berlusconi lasted in office for about a year, had to go into opposition, and then dominated Italian politics for the next two decades. The first time that Kaczynski's law and justice government was in charge in the 2000s, they lost control pretty quickly, but then came back a decade later and have been disassembling Polish democracy very effectively since. But there is also a positive lesson to take from this, an inspiring lesson, and that's the one that I want to focus on today, which is that if the United States manages, as the polls suggest, to send Donald Trump home after his first term in office, if Donald Trump is replaced by a new president who actually cares about the values of liberal democracy, of individual freedom and collective self-determination, then this will be a rare and remarkable achievement. And it could be the beginning of a real fight back of liberal democracy against the forces of authoritarian populism. Well, today it's my pleasure to welcome Matt Iglesias to the podcast. Matt, of course, is very interesting a pundit and writer about economic policy and many other issues. He's written a very interesting new book called One Billion Americans, arguing for why America should really try to grow its population, both through policies domestically that make it easy for people to have kids, but also through very generous immigration policies. We talk about that a bunch, but we also talk about some of the issues on free speech, wokeness, quote-unquote, uh, the Harper's letter. Uh, and those are particularly interesting because Matt used to be quite skeptical and dismissive of the importance of some of those concerns, but he's come to change his mind and has quite courageously spoken out on a number of issues in the last months. And so we both try to understand together what the nature of those debates is, but I'm also probing him a little bit on how he came to change his mind on those issues. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Matt Iglesias, welcome to the podcast. Very glad to be here. So you've had an interesting kind of ideological evolution or perhaps to some extent conversion over the last few months. Not that your values have necessarily changed, but you were quite a leading voice in saying that people who were concerned about what was going on on campuses, the sort of changed culture, whatever you want to call it, the successor ideology as was Yang calls it, or cancel culture, you know, which is the sort of a somewhat problematic, a more common term, was really overblown, but we shouldn't be too worried about it. And it seems to me that in the last few months, you decided, alongside me and many others, to sign the Harper's Letter. You've been quite vocal on Twitter about some of the excesses in our culture. So it seems like you've changed your mind about that. 
Was it, as in the Bible, the one moment where you saw something that changed your mind? Was it an accumulation of little things? How did that evolution happen? I would say two or, or maybe three different things happened that my thinking changed on. One was that this conversation used to be very heavily focused on events that were happening on college campuses in the United States. I was never exclusively about that, but I, I would say there was a lot, a lot, a lot of focus there. And it never seemed that important to me, right? Like the quirks of college campus atmospheres are not something I'm that interested in, not that invested in, don't have clear political remedies, don't have obvious political relevance to me. I also spoke, I mean, I, I speak fairly regularly with professors at, at various universities, and most of the ones who I spoke to said to me that their own estimation of this is that things were being overblown. So I take that seriously, because there's hundreds of campuses around the country, and of course, like, something objectionable can happen on one of them in any given month. So two things about that changed over the course of this year. One was that it became clear to me that rather than sort of students outgrowing some of these norms that exist in kind of left-wing campus politics as they moved into the real world, that they were starting to influence institutions off campus very heavily. And I think you saw that really clearly with the situation with David Shore at Civis Analytics, which I've written about. You also saw it to an extent with the New York Times and the Tom Cotton op-ed and James Bennett, where I thought on one level, you know, I was never a fan of the New York Times' practice of just sort of handing the microphone to random politicians to sort of spout whatever. And I wasn't a fan of that cotton op-ed, but it was clearly within the confines of, like, the normal way the New York Times opinion section had been run. Yeah, this is the thing that always annoyed me about that particular firing, which is that I, like you— don't think that the New York Times needs to let the Taliban run op-eds in its pages, needs Vladimir Putin to run op-eds in its pages, needs propagandists for Viktor Orban to run op-eds in its pages. But to pretend that the cotton op-ed was somehow outside the bounds of New York Times tradition or that the problem with it was factual inaccuracy rather than a new taboo on what should be said in the op-ed page was just, I mean, somewhat Orwellian. It was just, a, you know, a very, very transparent series of lies about, you know, why exactly Bennett was fired. Right. And so to react to that with a large public controversy, because people were fired up about it, and to go after it and say, okay, you know, like, we're going to change how we think about this going forward, right. I think would have been perfectly reasonable. Like, I think there's a lot about the way newspaper opinion sections function that has become obsolete. I think, you know, it, totally fine. But that Bennett was fired for a purely sort of post hoc violation of a new norm, right? It was odd. And Shore really fired for no reason at all, other than people got mad at Twitter for based on I don't even know what, some kind of some kind of misunderstanding. I mean also I should say, like I know both of those guys personally. I'm not super close with either of them, but they are people who I know. And that brought things much closer to home for me than kind of previous conversations that we've been having. Then the other thing that was interesting to me about the fallout from those incidents is been the sort of I don't quite know what to say it, but a certain like rewriting of history around them, right? Where, again, like with Bennett, people don't even want to say, okay, what happened here was that, you know, we made a change and this one guy kind of fell on his sword as a consequence of that and it was too bad. But instead, a kind of a myth, you know, was propagated about what happened there. Also, an interesting thing to me is that the critics internally to the New York Times of that op-ed used the language that published this put New York Times staffers in danger, which is a very particular sort of verbiage, right? And, and it was a real mm. example of a kind of what I used to think of as a curiosity, a sort of student politics on campus, migrating into a different kind of institution where people were having like a disagreement about editorial values, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Like publications change their editorial mission all the time. It's not just reasonable for staffers at the New York Times to argue 
argue about how the opinion section should work. It's like there's nothing better for them to argue about than how the newspaper should work. But the tendency to transform an intellectual dispute or a dispute about editorial taste into a dispute about harms and physical threat in a professional mainstream institution, to me, showed that the whole phenomenon that people have been talking about for several years had really come much closer to the mainstream, to places that I care about in ways that I think actually are quite significant. And in terms of a discourse of danger, I imagine you may not want to get into that. One of your own colleagues then said that you endangered their safety at the workplace because you signed the Harper's letter, which to me was an even more absurd sort of exaggeration of the facts than the argument that somehow black journalists at the New York Times might be harmed by Tom Cotton being given a platform. Well, at least I can see, uh, you know, the kind of link. I mean, I guess you could imagine that if Tom Cotton's op-ed was listened to and the military quashed a protest and a black New York Times journalist was covering it, you know, you could sort of imagine a remote causal link there. Whereas the claim that you're signing the Harper's letter somehow endangered somebody seemed to be even more esoteric. So feel free to comment on that insofar as you'd like. I understand if you don't want to or can't. But tell me something as well about the wider significance you now take this to have. I mean, is this a concern, as some of our critics like to say, about poor James Bennett or about poor David Shaw and the few individuals who sort of are harmed by that? Or what do you think will happen to these institutions or to our politics in general? if these norms really do take over completely within the sort of mainstream or left-of-center American space? You know, I think the one thing that is odd about this practice to me, right, is that in the internet era, the idea of deplatforming people has less actual efficacy than ever before, right? Like, it is really easy to get around gatekeepers. And one reason why I think it actually makes sense for The Times to not just publish random Republican senators' op-eds, like, as an editorial decision, is it used to be that, like, the only way for Tom Cotton to make his ideas known to the newspaper reading audience of New York City was to write an op-ed in a New York City newspaper. Now, like, there's no need for that, right? Like, you can't stop Tom Cotton from communicating. You can't stop anybody from communicating. So on one level, it's fine. On another level, specifically if the sorts of institutions that consider themselves committed to progressive values, social justice, economic and racial inequality, if they adopt a set of norms internally that prevents them from having rigorous discussions of what's going on, they're simply going to become ineffective, right? They're not going to be able to do their jobs correctly. We need to be able to discuss, I mean, all this was playing out in the backdrop of a sudden surge of interest in the idea of police abolition or perhaps defunding the police, right? And I thought at that time that it was important to have a real conversation about the state of our knowledge of public opinion, of how law enforcement works, of how crime works, of what the relative costs and benefits of these different ideas are, because it just like it matters for governance, right? If the most left-wing jurisdictions in America all hop on a misguided bandwagon and crime soars and a lot of people get killed, and it discredits anti-racist politics, like, that's really bad, right? Like, the emotions and the sentiments that erupted after George Floyd's death are incredibly important. They have been really important to the cause of American liberalism for decades. The level of public interest in them has ebbed and flowed. But it's important in a journalistic space, in an academic space, to be able to have, you know, rigorous searching probes of these kinds of ideas. And I think in a lot of cases that didn't happen. Now, I do think that, you know, one of the upshots of the kind of summer surge of interest in this discussion is that I now think that a lot of institutions have backed away from the edge, right? That a situation that I found very concerning in, I don't know when it was, June or July, actually seems improved to me by September or whatever of this year. But that's because, you know, 
there was pushback and people mm. like had fights and it was ugly. But eventually, like the doors opened. There was a really good article in the New York Times yesterday about some of the really loopy protest tactics that have been adopted by, I mean, it's fringy groups in the Pacific Northwest mostly that, you know, seem really counterproductive. I mean, it was a newsy piece. You know, it wasn't written with a heavy slant, but it was a good piece and you could tell what the author was trying to say. And there have been good pieces about the Minneapolis city council, you know, rethinking some of their police defunding ideas. So it's good. And there are some people who, what they do all day online is kind of scour the internet for the worst excesses of, you know, left identity politics or something. And they point at them and they go, see, see, see. And I'm not that person. I am primarily actually interested in doing articles about politics and policy in a straightforward way. But there was a moment when I really did feel the sort of tentacles of conformity moving tighter and tighter. And I thought it was important to push back against that. And it's good that we can get to a better place to an extent. But, you know, it remains a concern. So I have a couple of questions about that, I think. I mean, one is just trying to understand that conformity. I mean, to Mm -hmm. me, one of the attractions of being an academic, a writer, for lack of a better term, a public intellectual, is to think about the world, right? I mean, I think everybody, you know, it's actually pretty hard to succeed in that business. And I think everybody who does succeed in that business could easily go and make more money on Wall Street or some other, you know, part of the American economy. And the reason why I have chosen to do this life rather than do something like be on Wall Street is that I'm generally interested in ideas and I cherish a life spent thinking freely about the world and what I think about it and what I think is important. And it just strikes me how many writers and journalists don't seem to care about that, who sort of seem willing to outsource their opinions to whatever the prevailing friend group is and who actually have radically changed their opinions on a number of important issues over the last five or ten years without seeming to recognize that they've actually changed their opinion in radical ways and without seeming to at all chafe at the fact that on 2030 topics, there now is a relatively prescribed opinion, perhaps less strictly prescribed than two or three months ago, but nevertheless quite clearly discernible. So one question I have to you is just at a personal level, as somebody who's been around a lot of journalists for longer than I have, <laughs> what do you think explains that? Yeah, I mean, look, I always got into this. I thought it was, I continue to think it's fun to speak my mind, to explore different ideas, to, you know, go do whatever. And I don't know exactly why. It is, I think, really clear to me that there are a number of people in the writing business who have developed, you know, real instincts of conformism. Conformism to the near group, not conformism in the, like, 1950s, you know, organization man sense, where, you know, you Yeah, conformism to the opinions of 5% of the U.S. population, interestingly. Right, well, conformism to the opinions of young college graduates who live in big coastal cities, right? Which, you know, that's me too. I'm not like, oh, you know, I'm Mr. In Touch with the Universe. But it has something to do with, I think, the greater economic precariousness of journalism today compared to where we were before. It has something to do with the way audience metrics work, you know, and you sort of know what's getting clicks, you know what's not. It has something to do with the way social media works, right? Something you see on all kinds of topics, right, is like Twitter is all these these weird factions and feuds and different things go together in different kinds of ways and You know, I didn't even realize this, but like because I agreed with some people about one set of issues related to policing and speech issues over the summer, I had accidentally fallen in with an online clique who has a completely different view than I do of the Russia investigation and the influence of Russian foreign policy on sort of right-wing authoritarian populism across the United States. And to me, though, like, that's just normal. Like, you agree with people about some stuff and you disagree with them about other stuff, right? But there's this incredible, you know, it's almost like digital street gang. Right. Where everybody, they know who has their back and they know who their enemies are and you pile on and it doesn't really matter what the fights are about in The Wire. There's a famous scene where, you know, one one of the gang leaders says, if it's a lie, we fight on that lie. And I feel like there's a lot of that spirit on the sort of online world. 
Of course, the other thing is that journalism has changed, right? It used to be that there was a career path for somebody who would start at a, a small daily newspaper and, you know, cover the school board. And if you did a good job covering the school board, you might cover the city council or you might go to the state legislature or you might go to a slightly bigger newspaper. And it took real skills to do that work, right? You had to write clean copy. You had to make phone calls. You had to get your facts right. But it was a form of writing in journalism that didn't really call for creativity. It was a, you know, workmanlike. Uh, it was a craft. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, my mother, she wasn't a writer, she's a graphic designer, but she worked at Newsweek while I was a kid. So, you know, I'm very familiar with the kind of old days of journalism. And there were people at that time who, like, were columnists and had their big takes or would write these huge features. But there were also just lots of reporters. Hmm. And it's problematic that a lot of that reporting has gone away. Like, in so many ways, we don't have good coverage of state government like we used to. We don't have good coverage of what's happening in cities. That was an incredible incredibly socially vital role for people to play. And that role is gone. And so what we instead have is this kind of ideological enforcer, right, where people will go look at what's the latest movie to come out on Netflix, and they'll say, oh, is the politics of this movie good? Right. And they'll like yell at people who have the wrong opinion about it. And that to me, it just like, what does it contribute to society? Well, so let me ask you about your optimism. And I both shared and I don't. I was actually quite optimistic at the beginning of the year that some of the crazier parts of this were burning out and then that opinion changed quite strongly. And, you know, over the summer when you did see these, you know, really irrational firings of people like David Shaw, but also of people like this electrician in San Diego and so on. And you saw the media just really moving as one. I mean, you know, critical reporting on some of the protest tactics in Portland and Seattle as you're saying, we're an incredible rarity in places like the New York Times. Now, on the one side, there's a little bit more of that. As you're saying, Nellie Bowles, who happens to be Barry Weiss's partner, has written a couple of very good pieces on Portland, one, I think, a month or two ago, and one just very recently in the New York Times. You know, there has been pushback against the idea of defunding the police, and people recognize how unpopular position that is. There's actually quite an interesting indication of the leader of the city council in Minneapolis, I believe, who had called on abolishing her police department, now starting to ask questions about why the response times for various uh, noise nuisances in her neighborhood are so slow, because clearly she talked to some of her constituents and figured out that their opinions are a little different from what she imagined them to be. So you can see a little bit of that course correction on particular issues going on. And I agree that that is a heartening development. I do have still two worries about that, though. The first is that it does seem to me like the fact that there was overreach and that there was real mistakes and that there's a course correction going on is being memory hold. So that very clearly some of the activists, and a lot of the activists who talked about defunding the police meant that literally. And now, oh, if you think that defunding the police means defunding the police, that's just a right-wing talking point or conspiracy theory. Clearly, we just meant reassigning a little bit of the budget you know, to having more mental health outreach or whatever, which is perfectly sensible, right? But that's clearly a latter-day change in how this is presented. I mean, another conversation in this, which is a little beyond our topic, is around the 1619 project, where very, very clearly it was framed in the copy of the project on the website and other places, that the point of the project was to say that 1776 is not the real founding of America, and 1619 is the true founding of America. And in fact, Nicole Hannah-Jones's Twitter profile picture is literally 1776 crossed out and 1619 replacing it. Now, I think it's very healthy that the New York Times is changing track on this and saying, no, actually, the idea of a project, which I'm sympathetic to, is to think of 1619 as one of the founding moments of America, one of the true origin points of what the country today looks like, that we have to grapple with more deeply than we have so far. But what I'm finding a little bit Orwellian is that this is done through a lie. It's done through stealth editing, a lot of New York Times copy, and it's done through accusing anybody who pushed back against the idea of 1619 as the one true founding of the United States as somehow, you know, falling prey to right-wing conspiracy theories. So one thing I worry about in this moment is that even when the corrections happen, they happen in a way that deeply disincentivize people being able to criticize overreaches as they are happening. And the second related point is that one lesson that I think a lot of people have taken from the last months is that 
if you are irrationally accused of a fraud crime, if you're irrationally accused of having done something bad, your institution will not stand by you. And now I'm aware that it's easy to go picking for examples of this, which perhaps are exaggerated or not exaggerated, actually, because many of them we've reported out, but but perhaps the extreme cases where you got unlucky. But that stuff is still going on, right? So a Mm -hmm. professor at the University of Southern California held a little lecture on filler words, and he used a very, very common, I'm learning Chinese at the moment, a very common Chinese filler word as an example. In English, it's um, that, that you might say, and in Chinese people say sort of over there. And the mm-hmm. Chinese word for over there happens to sound a little bit, not too much, like the N-word. And so he used that word as an example of filler words in other languages, something that he started doing a few years ago to be more inclusive of a large Chinese student contingent they have in the classes. And he was not only placed on leave from teaching for this perceived transgression, but the dean of the business school of the University of Southern California, who used to be the dean of the Wharton School. So this is not the assistant dean of student life at some little liberal arts college in the Northeast, right? It's a very serious figure in American academia. Basically sent a letter saying that this professor had done something very bad and that he's apologizing on behalf of this professor. Now, again, this is one professor. He's not going to lose his livelihood. But in terms of making people from newspapers to academia to all these different walks of life think, if I get anywhere close to the line by mistake, nobody's going to look out for me. So I better make sure that I don't go anywhere close to that line if I care about my reputation and livelihood. I guess I'm still worried about how that's going to reshape American public life in the coming years. I agree. I don't want to say like, okay, this concern is now dead and buried. But I do think one of the things... I originally gotten some hot water for was pointing out after Floyd's death that police killings of unarmed African-Americans had actually declined since Michael Brown in Ferguson. And then in particular, we'd seen a decline in large cities, right? The point I was trying to make there was not like, oh, there's no problem here, go home, but that years of activism on this subject had in fact been bearing fruit, Right. That like in the specific jurisdictions where left of center people have political clout, this Hmm. problem that they had been talking about had in fact been ameliorated and had been somewhat offset in the national aggregates by the police killing more unarmed white people in rural areas, which is not good, I think. But also that's where progressive activism doesn't like have any influence. Right. So I wanted to make the argument that this police reform activism was in fact bearing fruit and that people should not become disheartened. Not that they shouldn't be concerned about the issue or they should all go home and stop complaining, but that it was working. And so something that I also want to say about the disruptions in journalism over this past summer is that, like, I think that there has been positive change. Not nobody should worry about this ever again or nobody should talk about this ever again, but that, like, there was an impact of pushback and institutions are correcting themselves somewhat. The 1619 Project, I think, is an interesting example of the ways in which internet culture, social media culture, are making everything incredibly stupid. When that came out, right, when it originally came out, I saw it and I thought to myself, I'm just old enough to like remember print magazines when they were really in their glory days. And I was like, I get it. This is a special issue of a print magazine, right? And special issues of print magazines often have conceits. And the conceit is often insupportable, if you take it hyper-literally. I was an intern at Rolling Stone, and every year they do, or they did, like, the hot issue. And the hot issue would tell you what's hot right now, right? And if you say to yourself, like, okay, is it really true that all and only the things in this issue are the things that are hot right now? Like, of course not. But it's just it's just a thing, right? Like, they do the hot issue. And then you read the articles, and are the articles good? So if you read the 1619 Project, you read the articles in it, there's one of them that I think had some pretty serious problems and relies on the new history of capitalism scholarship in a way that is not well-balanced. But they're mostly, like, really good. You know, like, Jamel Bowie has a great essay on the role of slavery and racism in shaping the sort of undemocratic nature of American political institutions. Kevin Cruz has a great article about the way in which segregation shaped the transportation system in Atlanta. And Nicole Hannah-Jones, you know, 
her lead essay, it has a couple of rhetorical flourishes that I don't think you can support, right? She says that, like, African-Americans fought alone for racial equality, which is, like, obviously not true. Like, look at a photograph of a civil rights protest. They're not alone. That said, like, it's a great essay, right, on the theme of how an African-American intellectual witnessed her father's American patriotism as a young person, but didn't understand it, and how she came to find an understanding of American history that reconciled herself to that. Right. And it's wonderful, I think, essay, you know, even as with anything like you can raise questions about it. But then the follow on the social media promotion, right, has all this stuff, you know, the true founding of America. And she gets into all kinds of Twitter fights with people, with many critics who were over the top and then becomes over the top herself. And next thing you know, we're all reacting not to like the content of that issue, but to arguments that people have ex-post. And now they've started in with, I think she just angrily denied online last week or something that she had ever said this was the true founding of America, which is obviously not true. It's like they're in the copy. And so now there's this scrubbing of the copy and like, it's bad, as you say. But I also think like, it's a shame, right? There was this this old line I agree. I from that I- Duke Donkheim, right? Like, it's worse than a crime. It's a mistake, right? Like, it has obscured the like actual... <laughs> work that was in there into a series of like internet feuds and now weird revisionism about the sharpest excesses of the marketing. And I don't know like what we're going to do about that. As everything becomes decontextualized online, as everybody has their kind of fights, as things can be re-edited digitally, as things can be blown way out of proportion, like it's a tricky situation. And I should try to talk about my book because I'm here on the podcast. And this, it's on a topic that, you know, really came up a lot as I was working on the book, which is not like about race or any of these questions, but I was trying to write a very patriotic book in its way, which has mostly progressive ideas about things. And, you know, a sort of fringy left position that, like, you shouldn't have a patriotic association with the United States of America has gone more mainstream, not like 50% mainstream, but like enough people that you can't completely ignore them. And I don't think that's It's good that people are able to say what they think about this, but I don't think it's a healthy political development. I think it's a dead end for progressive politics. I'm Yasha Monk, and I'm the host of The Good Fight podcast, as well as the founder of Persuasion. I started The Good Fight four years ago to try and understand how we can defend the values of liberal democracy against the rise of authoritarian populists in the United States and around the world. I have learned a lot in these four years speaking to people from David Miliband to Francis Fukuyama, from Ann Applebaum to Gary Kasparov. Join us for in-depth, serious, fun conversations that help you understand what the threats to the values of a free society are today and what all of us can do in order to stand up for our values in perilous times. So I was just about to lead into your book, don't worry. (laughs) You know, one of the things that I'm really struck by in this moment is the proud pessimism of everybody, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm in 2008, which is when I really came to the country. I spent a year in New York in 2005, and I started my PhD in 2007, and that's really the moment since when I've been continuously resident here. And that was, you know, exactly coincided with the rise in the primaries of Barack Obama and his incredibly optimistic vision of the United States. And perhaps in retrospect, in some ways overly optimistic, or at least a lot of people I don't think it was Obama who was overly optimistic exactly, but a lot of the commentary around it that we had reached with post-racial society and so on was over-optimistic. But I think if I came to this country in a moment that was overly optimistic, I'm struck that this seems to me a moment, very understandably, since Donald Trump is the president of the United States and there's all kinds of other problems, that is overly pessimistic, in which there is nearly an aversion 
to thinking that anything about the United States is okay or that anything could get better. And that, I think, helps to explain that reaction to pointing out, hey, this very, very deep and terrible problem is actually getting somewhat better. And it's getting somewhat better because people are pushing on it and because of very important activism. But surely that's something we should celebrate. And actually it's something that can give us energy and hope to keep pushing. But instead there is this sort of addiction, I think, at this moment to saying everything is terrible and everything is bad. And if you don't see that, then you're a bad person. So anyway, that brings us a little bit to your book because your book is a very optimistic book. It's the idea that America can continue to be highly influential in the world, where they can integrate hundreds of millions of immigrants and be a really thriving society to which people want to flock and which they can lead a good life. Tell us a little bit about the conceit of your own book. You're talking about the conceit of a special issue of, mm-hmm. of, of, of a New York Times <laughs> magazine. The conceit of this book is that America should stay on top of the world. And the only way to do that is to radically grow the U.S population to 1 billion. And then there's a set of interesting proposals about what it would take to be able to do that. Tell us about the normative conceit, first of all. You know, why should we want so desperately for the United States to stay on top of the world? And why does that require getting to 1 billion Mm -hmm. Americans? I mean, you can give some specific thoughts about the nature of the Chinese regime, the things that they are doing in the world. But I think a really big picture way, you know, you think back to 13 original colonies, states, you know, independent of Great Britain, and they had some choices to make about what they wanted to try to do as a country, right? And the founding fathers, the early republic, they could have steered the United States on a course to be very similar to Canada, our neighbors up north, who have a lot in common with us, right? Continental-scale country, vast natural resources, a British legacy of the rule of law, problematic treatment of the indigenous population, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But Canada, while it's very nice— You know, I've been there. They have high living standards. They do well in Human Development Index reports. They have avoided some of the egregious historical crimes of the United States. But it's a little country. It's 30 million people, and they're not very influential in the world. They kind of tag along with the British in the occasional war, and the British Empire fades itself, whereas the United States is a really big deal. Right. The United States is a shining city on the hill. The United States is the arsenal of democracy. And I think that that is, all things considered, a good thing and has been a good thing throughout history. It has been of benefit to the Canadas and New Zealands of the world to have the United States out there and that it's not something we should let go of, that the United States is... I don't want to say we're unique, but we are unusual in the possession of a very strong tradition of civic nationalism that is very deeply tied to liberal and egalitarian values that makes it possible for lots of people from all around the world to come here and truly become American. I I was always struck when I was in high school, I did an exchange and I lived with a family in Paris. And something happened on the street by the house. And, you know, I was talking about it with the father of the family. And he was saying, well, was the guy French? And I said, I think so. I mean, he was speaking French. And he said to me, yeah, but was he really French? And I said, I don't, I didn't quite. And what he meant was, is he white? Right, right. You know, uh, we obviously have racists in America and we have racism. um, And we sometimes have an esoteric conspiracy theory, like Barack Obama is secretly Kenyan. But generally speaking, like nobody denies the Americanness of African Americans, right? And in fact, like it's the opposite. So many of the most American things, most distinctly American cultural contributions come from Black America. Right. And that's a good thing about America. Right. Like you, you can this, really. This always strikes me in the American discourse. I mean, because I grew up in Europe and I'm intimately familiar with this idea that you really are only uh, truly French or truly German or truly Italian if your ancestors way back are from there. You know, I mean, this is true for somebody like me who grew up Jewish in Germany. When I mentioned that I was Jewish, even if I'm born and raised in Germany and don't have an accent speaking German, don't visibly look different from most Germans. That itself was enough for people to think that I'm not German. Some of the idea of being Jewish and being German are are, are opposites. I was really struck by it when I was reporting a piece for Harper's a few years ago, and I was in this high school class in an industrial town in Germany, in Dinslaken. There was actually a a Muslim religion class taught by a very interesting sort of liberal Muslim reformer, Lamia Kador, who was actually on the Board of Advisors of Persuasion. 
And, you know, she was making a very sort of pat point about tolerance and that, you know, whether or not you're a good person doesn't depend on whether you're Sunni or Shia or whether you're Muslim or not Muslim, whether you're German or something else. And this one kid who was about 13, I think, you know, raised his hand and said, you know, that's right, that's right, I have a German friend. And this kid was born and raised in Germany, and he right. thought of himself as so obviously not German that, you know, the one white kid, I guess, he was friends with, the one person who had, you know, fully German ancestry, was his one German friend. You know, for all of the problems of America, I think it is unimaginable to find a 13-year-old who was born and raised in the United States who has that self-conception. And this is what's so hateful about Trump to me, right? That if you connect things like the birther stuff that preceded his entry into politics with, you know, he told the squad they should go back where they came from, like they from mm. America, right? I guess Ilhan Omar was was born abroad, but but the other three of them are native-born Americans. He said the other day he was bragging about some of his diplomatic achievements in the Middle East, and he said to American Jews, "We love your country." Right? But America is my country. You know, and, well, it's, it's, and it's, it's actually it's one of the ways in which Donald Trump really is a European far right figure a, 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 rather than American far right yes, figure. Yeah, he, he yeah. has imported, and of course, it's not like again, and all these things, it's not like racism is alien to America, which is right. which people sometimes say. But it is when you say that Donald Trump's thinking on these subjects is un-American. Like I don't mean that it is alien to the United States of America, but that there has been a tension in the United States of America, including a literal war in which hundreds of thousands of people died on the tension between American civic nationalist vision of Abraham Lincoln and the ethnic nationalist vision of Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis. And Trump so squarely sides with the latter. Like, he assimilates his defense of American patriotism with his defense of Confederate statues. He says to make America great again, but he negates the real wellsprings of American greatness. And I think it's an awful tendency on the left to sort of concede the point to Trump and be like, oh, yes, you're right. Like, this ugly, awful shit is like that that's the real America. It's real things that have happened in America, right? We shouldn't be in denial about it. But, you know, all men are created equal. That's the real America. Lincoln's second inaugural address, that's the real America. You know, Martin Luther King having a dream, the inauguration of Barack Obama, like that to me is the real America and it's worth fighting for. And that's part of the point of the book is that like America plays this role in the world in a somewhat unique way. And we also have a unique ability to actually counter the incredible scale that China plays in the world economy. And this great report from PEN America came out right before the book was published, but it was about how Chinese censors influence Hollywood movies. That it used to be they would just say, oh, you know, you can't show that in China. And they might not show the movie or they might make the change. But China is now the largest domestic box office market in the Mm. world. So access to the China market is not a nice to have for Hollywood. It's a must have. And if they tell you that a character, the ancient one in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is a Tibetan, a Tibetan monk in the comic books, but you can't have a Tibetan in a movie now because China won't allow it, right? And Disney, you know, like capitalism has no morals, right? And NBA players like are very outspoken on a lot of social issues in the United States. And I think that's great. And we saw what happened to Daryl Morey when he tried to be outspoken about human rights in Hong Kong. He got shut down by the league, shut down by his colleagues because they need money, right? And like, we need to address that in part on a foreign policy level, but also it's just a reality. If the Chinese market is more valuable than the American market, then not only will that influence our own policy decisions, but it's going to change the thinking of companies and countries all around the world, right? And we want to lead in this space. And that means I think we have to literally lead in terms of the scale of the country. And for all the reasons we were just rehearsing, like we have the ability to do that. America has an incredible ability of not assimilation exactly, but integration, right, of people from different places into a common civic framework where we are a diverse country where there's a lot of different stuff going on and we can sort of hate each other half the time, but still really all be Americans. So how do we get to that vision if we want to uh, have a billion Americans in order to 
have more weight in the world and make the promise of America accessible to more people from around the world. What concretely do we have to do in order for that to be a feasible prospect? So some of this, which is uh, further from you know your themes, is just welfare state stuff, right? We need to do more to support families with children. Uh, I think we should do a, a child allowance, universal child allowance, which is something Joe Biden just recently started talking about. We should have preschool programs. Because right now, people have fewer children than they say they would like to have. I mean, even though the impact of these kind of programs is modest, a small change in the number of children per person has a big compounding impact over time, especially if you also have more immigrants, which is what, you know, I think we should do. I think we should have a robust... Let me double click on the welfare stuff, because I am actually very interested in it. I wrote a book about the welfare state. The obvious objection that comes to my mind is that I'm completely in favor of all of those programs. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely think that the United States should have a welfare state, especially around those issues that is more similar to some of the better functioning European welfare states. But I wonder how much it really would increase fertility. Mm -hmm. When you look at France, France, I believe, has overall lower fertility than the United States. And even within France, a lot of its fertility comes from very recent immigrants who haven't yet quite imbibed French cultural preferences or values around the number of children you have. And then even once you're in the second or third generation of the descendants of immigrants, they actually integrate or assimilate in a sort of negative way in this sense, which is to say that they start having very few kids just like every other French person. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I wonder whether a very generous welfare state is going to make a big difference in how many kids Americans have. It may make it much pleasanter to raise children. It may make those children have us children have better life chances. It may make life in the United States a lot less stressful and scary. And all of those are good things and all of those are sufficient reasons to favor those kinds of welfare state measures. But I guess I'm just a little skeptical of the bet that it really would have a significant impact on fertility rates. Well, you know, so people read the evidence from France and Sweden in different ways. I think it's notable that France has the highest birth rate in Europe right? Hmm. Um, it is true, it's lower than the United States. I think if you look domestically, cross-nationally, etc., the, the primary determinant of family size is religion. So France, like all of Western Europe, is very secular, and people have low birth rates. The biggest exception to that is relatively recent immigrants to Europe who often come from the Islamic world or more observant. In the United States, we're much more religious than Europeans, but secular Americans also don't have a lot of children. It's religious ones who, who have more. But, you know, people do these studies, right? Cross-national, they do time-based studies, you know, to show what happens when new programs come in. They do difference and differences, comparing countries. Anyway, it all adds up to saying that a big change in the welfare state in the United States could generate probably an extra half a kid per person. So that's that's significant. Well, it depends how you look at it, right? These Mm. programs have developed a bad reputation because their primary advocates in recent years have been these kind of far-right Central European parties. And so if you are a far-right person and you don't like the idea of a welfare state, but you do like the idea of having more children, you look at this and you say, oh my God, I spent like hundreds of billions of dollars and I got an extra half a kid. Like that's terrible, right? On the other hand, if you are a progressive-minded person who thinks all the things you just said, like this would be a good idea, it would be good for equality, it would be good for upward mobility, it would make life better, blah, 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 then you do the math and you're like, okay, like all these things that I think are good ideas would also have a meaningful impact on the birth rate, right? And so that's me, right? So, like, I agree that, like, Viktor Orban's ideas have not really achieved his stated goals, but that's, I don't know, like, that's because far-right politics is dumb. Uh, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know any better way to put it. Um, you know, but it's been interesting, you know, so I've talked about this book on a lot of right-wing podcasts who are very sort of invested in that narrative because, of course, there's a dissonance in conservative politics in the United States between a lot of notional attachment to the family and incredible hostility, I mean, much more than among European right parties, to any kind of social welfare provision. And so they really want to believe that this is, like, totally ineffective. Effective. Oh, uh, interesting. Ju- you know, just like they want to believe that there's one crazy study out of Oregon purported to show that giving people Medicaid doesn't improve their health at all. There's a million studies of this question, and all of them say the opposite. But there's this is right, one right. study out of Oregon, and they like <laughs> they they wave it right like like a bloody shirt because I mean I don't know. It's like we were talking about aspects of the American left that go off the rails, but like the core economic policy commitments of the American right are. Like, 
nihilistic, you know, right. and and it prevents them from, I think, thinking in a in a serious way about this kind of, you know, like tedious stuff. So anyway, I am so, moderately I have a kid that actually does seem relatively significant to me, but obviously it doesn't get to a billion. So what are some of the other changes we should also make in order to grow the U.S. population and the way you envisage? Immigration is the other big tool, right? There are lots of people from around the world who would like to move here. The United States has been tearing itself apart for the past several years over, like, how do we stop people from coming I'm not an open borders person. I don't think we need to let in just absolutely anyone who happens to show up or have no enforcement of the rules or something like that. But also, like, enforcement issues are not exogenous to what the rules are. If we (laughs) create legal pathways for people to come and we say, like, we want you to do this, we want you to do that, we want you to do that, that's how you're going to qualify, like, people will do it, right? I mean, people go to great lengths to get into the country without authorization. It's not easy. And if instead of saying, okay, here's a million, like, dangerous and illegal things you have to do to get here, instead we say, look, like, I don't know, we want you to learn English. We want you to graduate from high school. Whatever it is, you know, reasonable people can disagree, but create more pathways for people to do that, and particularly create more pathways for foreign-born professionals to do that. You have made it here through some path or another. But I was shocked, honestly, when I was in a managerial position at how difficult it was to get visas to hire foreign journalists to come work at Vox, because the debate about immigration is never like, oh my God, you know, it's like, we're going to give these Canadian health writers, they're going to come flooding in and and destroy our country. But it's really like not trivial to get visas for people to work as computer programmers, to work as journalists, to work as doctors, a a million other things like that. And again, I mean, all modern developed countries have immigration to some extent, but it's such a comparative advantage of the United States and something we should really be building on rather than right now we're like turning down the dials on student visas. We're making it harder for people to get work permits for their spouses. And it's completely crazy. Here's a question that I find interesting on this, which is how do you structure that immigration? In Germany, the Green Party wants to introduce something like the Canadian point system, Mm -hmm. which is to say that, you know, if you speak German well, if you have a professional degree, if you earn a certain amount of money... But each of those gives you a few points, and if you get enough points, then you get the right to immigrate to a country. And this is seen in Germany as an extremely left-wing position, because the default is that we shouldn't have too much immigration in the first place. <laughs> and of course, some of the countries that we perceive as being very, very liberal and progressive, like Canada, operate on that basis. It's very difficult to immigrate to Canada if you're a low-skilled person or if you don't speak good English or French. If you're a high-skilled professional and you speak good English or French, it's much easier to immigrate to Canada than it is to the United States. Within America, the idea of selecting professionals in the way you were just saying is often seen as a far-right idea, that there's something morally unacceptable about discriminating between potential people who want to come to our country in this kind of way. So I guess, what would your ideal immigration system look like? To what extent would it give extra points or extra paths Mm -hmm. to people who are highly skilled? And how do we make sure that, you know, if we grow the size of a population from about 300 million today to a billion in whatever time frame it is, uh, we do actually integrate and assimilate in the kind of way that ensures that we remain a cohesive country, or perhaps become a cohesive country, since it's not clear to me just how cohesive our country <laughs> currently is. So, you know, I don't have an exact prescription for how this should work. I think that you have to be politically pragmatic about it, because big backlashes to immigration are a real thing. I think that what we should do is take what we have as a kind of baseline, and we should try to add more skilled professionals to it. Right now, the reason this is considered a right-wing proposal in America is that the rights proposal is to shrink the amount of immigration we allow and then limit the economic damage by selecting skilled professionals. I don't think we should do that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the people who are immigrating to the United States of America currently. There's nothing wrong with refugee resettlement that, you know, until Trump was president, we were a leader in uh, Ronald Reagan was a big advocate for refugees. But we should try to get more skilled professionals in here. I think particularly in the healthcare space where our cost structure is terrible and in the high tech space where we're just sort of a world market leader and that's very valuable and important. I think it would be interesting to think about 
what can we do in terms of more explicit promotion of integration? I was on Glenn Beck's show, and he was very interested in this. He very strongly felt that we need to sort of indoctrinate people in American values somehow. And I'm not 100% opposed to that. Uh, my, my grandmother always told me, she was born in Brooklyn, but in a Yiddish-speaking household up there. Her, her parents were immigrants. And, and she used to tell me about some like Americanization program that she went through as a kid that she said she found valuable, you know, that she learned things that she was not learning at home. It doesn't strike me as a crazy idea. I'm not 100% sure what it would look like in a practical sense. The other thing that I talk about in the book that I think would be useful is trying to find ways to direct immigrants to cities that have lost population and that opt in to a kind of immigration sponsorship program, right? So Akron's mayor, I know, was interested in this idea. And so like she could say, yes, like we want to get some extra Akron visas that we're going to give people to come here. I think it would be nice, both because people would be in communities that welcome them. It would be good to sort of uh, revive some of these cities that have lost population, but also the extreme geographical alignment between geography and politics that has happened in the United States is not a healthy development. I mean, you don't want to say, well, we're going to like force everybody to change where they live just because it would be more convenient for the discourse. But things that we can do to try to break down the tendency of one group of people to cluster in some very expensive coastal cities and other people to be in the interior, you know, is what I think we should look at. A couple of words. The first is that I know some other countries try that. I believe in Canada, on certain immigration visas, you're restricted to living, at least at first, in a rural area or outside the major cities. And I think the experience has been that people duly do that. And then as soon as sort of they are allowed to move, they move to <laughs> Toronto or Montreal and so on, as would I, right? I mean, understandably so, especially if you're from a community that actually has a lot of co-ethnics or co-religionists who speak the same language in a place like Toronto and you don't in whatever rural area you end up in. Well, the thing about Canada, right, is like once you go past Vancouver, you're like really falling off the off the cliff in terms of like what kind of level of cosmopolitanism we're offering. The difference in the United States, right, is that a city like Cleveland or St. Louis or Detroit is not a small town, right? It's not right, right. devoid of cultural amenities. It's not devoid of diversity and ethnic communities. What those cities are devoid of is economic opportunities, right? Like, I went to Cleveland. I had a great time there. There's a great museum, great farmer's market. There's a great Chinatown. There's a lot of cool stuff. But it's like, I was just there to do a speaking appointment at a Federal Reserve conference. I don't want to say I would be unemployable in Cleveland, but I couldn't do the kind of work that I would want to do there. And if you can bring people in, though, right, if instead of having Infosys doing all this IT outsourcing from Bangalore, if they have an office in Cleveland, that starts mm. to create new economic opportunity there, right, that these Midwestern cities, they're suffering just from depopulation itself is making it hard to maintain the infrastructure. You know, there was pressure on Detroit that there was a municipal bankruptcy and there was pressure on them to sell off the paintings in their art museum. And, you know, thankfully, the judge spared them from that fate. But it's just to say, like, it's a real city, you right, know? Right, no. And we shouldn't let it just, like, waste away. In all these interviews, I wind up speaking ill of Canada in an inadvertent way. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, you know, we're not talking about, like, tiny mountain towns or weird Quebec dairy farms. I'm trying to remember the name of the sitcom and maybe the mosque on the prairie or something like that. It's a very <laughs> sweet sitcom about a Muslim community in sort of middle of nowhere Canada. And so, you know, perhaps even in small town Canada, you can <laughs> find some coalitionists in this particular case. It's a very sweet sort of sitcom, actually. Anyway, more importantly, on the question of sort of imparting values. Now, I'm not opposed to that, for I think America is very good at that, as we noted earlier. But actually, you take a 13-year-old in the United States whose parents come from wherever it may be in the world, if they're born and raised in America, they will think of themselves as American in a way that may not be true that ended up going to France or Germany. And I think that's a real advantage. I, I guess I sometimes worry about the opposite of that, which is to say, actually, Zaid Jelani wrote a very good piece for us at Persuasion saying, look, immigrants are extremely patriotic. You know, they chose to come to the United States. For them, this is often the fulfillment of a dream that they've had all of their lives. And they're aware of, for all of the difficulties they encounter, especially in the first generation, the opportunities that the country 
is giving them. And it's often ironically that children who end up being less patriotic, who end up feeling more alienated. Nothing in part that is for good reason, which is to say that they have higher expectations and that they want to have the same opportunities and be treated the same way, and so they're very sensitive to not being treated the same way in every respect. And that's largely a good thing. I do also wonder whether actually, to some extent, the education system is working poorly here. That what happens to you if you go to certain schools, and frankly what happens to you if you go to some of the best colleges in the country, is that you're being taught out of patriotism, that you're being told that you should have a kind of oppositional identity. And so it may not be a matter of sort of the government commission going around trying to turn <laughs> people into proud American. It may be challenging some of the pedagogical practices that actually are successfully pushing people away from having the same identification of a country as their parents do. I would really be interested to see a sort of more careful study of this. I spoke to Razib Khan on his podcast about this, and Zayed and, and him have, I think, similar background, right? I mean, I, I think this is something that a lot of people of South Asian ancestry in particular have noted about the United States, that parents who themselves are often well-educated immigrants, right, and then their kids grow up with fairly good opportunities, go to college and become these like left-wing intellectuals. I would be interested to see a sort of real study of patriotic sentiments among second-generation people, look at, you know, how that differs for the much more working-class uh, Latino and Hispanic second-generation population, you know, try to see exactly what it is that's going on. I know when I was in college, this is now ancient research, but I took a class with Mary Waters, and, you know, she talked about sort of Afro-Caribbean immigrants and their kids and sort of assimilation, strong assimilation into American culture, but specifically into Black American culture, and the sort of mixed feelings that their parents would sometimes have about that, because a lot about African-American life was stigmatized by Afro-Caribbean immigrants themselves. So we've always had somewhat complicated relationships along those lines. I think that it's hard to have a policy that's like, okay, you know, college professors have to be more up with America because uh, there would be something very un-American about that. I think that, you know, in my own role as a writer and, you know, public intellectual and so forth, like, I have been trying in a variety of ways to center the immigrant experience a little bit more in people's understanding of what the United States is all about. Because I think the simple fact that people want to immigrate to the United States tells you something about the country, right? It's not like, well, if people want to come here, the country must be perfect. But it's that none of the countries that anybody is living in are perfect, right? And that all things considered, in a world of imperfect countries, an awful lot of people think the United States of America is a pretty good place to live. And that's something people should take to heart right? We have right now a discourse where the right is like in this state of paranoia and terror, like, oh my God, you know, people from Honduras, they want to come here. What are we going to do? And you have people on the left experiencing a certain cognitive dissonance about it, where they're like, well, we shouldn't be this terrible place that turns away these poor kids from Honduras. And it's like, yes, like we should not be, but also like they want to come here, right? Like <laughs> America is like, it's, it's, it's pretty good. And we should incorporate that into to the progressive narrative about like why it is we want to do these things, both, you know, reforms that are worth making on their own terms, but also like we want to embrace this. We want America to take advantage of people's desire to come here. And that means acknowledging ourselves that like America is desirable and that in some ways, you know, all people with U.S. citizenship are very privileged compared to, you know, people living in all kinds of countries, Nigeria, Bangladesh, what have you. So to get to your vision of one billion Americans, we would certainly have to be more optimistic. We would have to win the battle for more optimism on the right, for people who are worried about those kids from Honduras somehow stopping America from being truly American to recognize that that is not the case. But we'd also have to win the fight on the left for people to think that actually America is a country that can overcome its injustices in a way that will attract people and that we should celebrate in that way. How optimistic are you that we can get to that optimism? I'm fairly optimistic. You know, it is really easy to look at American politics and say, like, 
what a fucking shit show this is. It's interesting, though, that like the whole of American history is kind of a mess in terms of its domestic politics. I think Hofstadter has some quote. He's just like, the United States has never been a well-governed country. And yet it's pretty good. We've got a lot going for us. I have a more pessimistic mood. I am very concerned about the way unmajoritarian institutions have locked together to create a very real possibility that Trump and a Republican Senate will be returned in 2020 based on a minority of the vote, which I think would be bad for the country. And I think will fuel left-wing radicalism as well, right? I mean, it's great. I love the title of your publication. Like, persuasion is a great idea. And like, I want to say to everybody, look, pursue your ideas by A, persuading more people, and B, organizing to try to win elections. Like, we don't need to be burning down courthouses or yelling at people as they try to eat dinner. But that doesn't work that well if majority will is continually frustrated in electoral outcomes. And not that everything should be plebiscitary all the time, but, you know, that being said, it's like if your efforts at persuasion and legal constitutional change don't work, and particularly when you have a regime that, you know, these little things around the Hatch Act and should Mike Pompeo speak at political rallies and should Bill Barr be consulting with the president about the timing of DOJ releases— No one of those is so terrible, but the interlocking network of winning with fewer votes and abusing the rule of law, it's distressing on its own terms, and it's distressing because of what the reaction to that will be. So I really, like, I think Trump will probably lose, and I am optimistic that we can move beyond this, but I also worry a lot. Yeah, I certainly agree with worry about those things, but I ultimately have a hope that the real America is much better than the political scene. And every time I actually go out in the street and see how Americans are interacting with each other and what life in America actually looks like, I become more optimistic than when I look at my Twitter feed or at the headlines of the <laughs> New York Times. And I think your, your book in, in some ways reminded me of that. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.